Doctor Podcast. Again, we always appreciate you supporting people that support us. We can keep doing this thing. And uh, we're open to guest suggestions. Contact doctor.com if you want to suggest somebody. Um, I enjoy doing this podcast, and I hope you guys enjoy it too. Don't forget, though, that Adam and I are still doing something regularly at Adam and Dr. Drew Show, and that I do a streaming show Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday at 3 o'clock Pacific time. My wife produced that one, and we are talking to primarily all the people that have been canceled or marginalized during COVID. I immediately have an instinct to go talk to people that have been some, they must have something to say. If if so many people are making it uh, uh, their priority to, to silence them. And lo and behold, I've learned something from all of them. And don't forget also Aster, Aster, After Dark uh, for, for your mom's house. But uh, to that point about me going after people that uh, have been uh, attacked or marginalized in any way, Heather McDonald is here. She is the uh, Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. She's a contributing editor at City Journal, New York Times bestselling author. She has uh, written in Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times, LA Times, New Republic, New Criterion. Uh, and the newest book is When Race Trumps Merit. Uh other books include The Elephant in the Room, Dysfunctional Inner City Culture. And uh, let's see, did I miss any of them? Uh, the Pursuit of Equity, Sacrifices, Excellence. Welcome, Heather McDonald. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you, Dr. Drew. If I could just clarify, uh, Dysfunctional Inner City Pathologies is not the title of the book. That's a description of what I'm actually, the the truth that I'm, I'm broaching in the- uh, Elephant in the Room. In the yeah. elephant in the room, got it. Because they they put it on here as some like as it were a tub subtitle. Uh, all right, so let's talk. And by the way, please do not confuse Heather McDonald with my friend Heather McDonald, who's a comedian. This is a very different Heather McDonald. So, I don't mind being confused with her, but she probably drives her nuts to be confused with me if she knows who I am. So I, I don't know that's true because she likes being seen as somebody with an opinion and, and an intellectual heritage. So I, I don't know that. But let, let's tell us, you know, what is the premise of the book? I mean, it sort of says it in the title, but uh, what, what have you learned from it? I've read I've read some of it and uh, it, it's a, it's quite a survey. It's, tell us what you've learned. Well, I've learned that we're at risk of losing the very things that make Western civilization so extraordinary, which is a commitment to excellence, a commitment to rationality, a due reverence for past accomplishment, all based on the phony charge that America today is systemically racist. We are tearing down every meritocratic standard and every behavioral standard uh, because those standards, if applied in a neutral colorblind constitutional fashion have what's known as a disparate impact on blacks. Uh, and we are not willing to say that there are other explanations for the lack of racial proportionality in our mainstream institutions. We're not willing to say that every racial disparity is per se evidence of racism. And as long as we're not willing to say those things, as I say, Dr. Drew, uh, we are quickly, quickly tearing down our civilization and our hope for future progress. Did the recent Supreme Court decision have any sort of impact on the direction of this? And my sort of corollary question is, has it raised awareness about the racism against Asian Americans? It did, I think, for those who were paying attention. Uh, but the curious thing about this decision, SFFA versus Harvard, that Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard, is that the plaintiffs who brought the case uh, into court 
very much concentrated on Harvard's discrimination against Asians, making them uh, achieve much, much higher levels of academic accomplishment compared to black students. But the court decision actually was not written in those terms at all. It was written much more broadly. And a lot of the statistical wrangling that went in at the district court level, at the trial court, as to whether Harvard was using something called personal ratings of, of student applicants in a way to uh, lower the admissions chances of Asians, whether that was discriminatory, whether that was going on at all. This was an enormously large topic uh, earlier before it got to the Supreme Court, and it just poof disappeared at the higher at the higher court. Uh, but yes, if you were paying attention, you do know that that there are just wildly vast uh, differential academic admission standards. If you're white and Asian, you have to meet very high standards in selective schools. If you're black or Hispanic, especially if you're black, you'll be admitted uh, to selective schools with test scores that would be automatically disqualifying if presented by a white or Asian high school senior. Would it be, what would you say to someone who says, look, well, look, we have to do something. We put affirmative action in place. Uh, I, I'm i going to argue for the sake of this conversation um, that it had a net positive effect. It was worth whatever excesses it went into, went into it. But uh, perhaps we went uh, too long or too far with it. Would that be a reasonable assessment or would you push back on even that? I would push back on even that, Dr. Drew, because the fallacy is that racial preferences help their alleged beneficiaries. In fact, they do not. When you put a student into an academic environment for which he is not competitively qualified, he's going to flounder. And, and let me take this out of the race context, Dr. Drew, which is, makes most well-meaning white Americans extremely uncomfortable to talk about belying the charge that they're white supremacists. But let's let's look at this in a sex context. If MIT decided it needs more female students in its undergraduate body or graduate programs for that matter, and admitted me, and let's say on my math SATs, I had a 650 on an 800 point scale, whereas my peers who've been admitted not based on gender preferences, but based on their academic qualifications had 800s or close to 800s on their math SATs, that is near perfect or perfect scores. What's gonna happen in my first year of calculus? What's gonna happen in my first year of chemistry? I'm gonna be in an academic environment pitched towards the average, which is students with much more advanced mathematical skills than I have, and I'm gonna flounder. It's gonna be very hard for me to keep up. And of course, MIT's diversity bureaucracy is gonna step up, rush over to me and say, well, don't you know that you're really the victim of misogyny? You're in a campus rape culture and that's why you're not doing well. Well, the same thing happens with black students who've been admitted to schools with massive uh, differences in their academic skills, at least a standard deviation uh, between their SAT scores or ACT scores and those of their white and Asian counterparts. Let me let me uh, let me continue my logic from where I started and say, well, 
So, yes, it might be unrealistic for them to catch up, but isn't it a net positive that they're being uh, asked to perform at this level of competition that they wouldn't otherwise be exposed to? And we'll just reduce the requirements into the graduate program so we can just kind of carry this around along and maybe then things will sort of e- equalize. Well, that's exactly what happens, of course. Standards are lowered for blacks along the road. And I just ask your listeners, uh, and this is happening in medical schools. Medical schools admit black medical school applicants with MCAT scores. These are the medical uh, college admissions tests that are the counterpart of the SATs. Medical schools are now admitting blacks with MCAT scores that, again, would be automatically disqualifying if presented by whites and Asians and they get passed along. Uh, The pressure is on to lower medical licensing tests. We've already gotten rid of the grades in the step one of the medical licensing exam, which comes after a student's second year of medical school because Blacks did so poorly on it. So we've gone to a pass-fail basis. So residencies can't know how poorly Blacks are performing. I just ask your listeners Do they want to have doctors who've been chosen and promoted all the way along their academic careers because of their race or because of their their actual academic qualifications and their knowledge of how to save a body that has been uh, destroyed in a car? Is anyone anyone looking at the the professional performance uh, of people that have been uh, pulled along a little bit? My, my My actually concern about all that would be that a Black physician would feel uh by the patient that somehow they were inferior because they had been pulled you know what i mean that they would be like oh you're if you're a certain color a certain right ethnicity or something and you're a doctor well mm, we know how you got here kind of thing i would worry that patients would feel that way if if it were untrue especially it, it would seem very unfair to for the physicians that would they got to that point on their own merit and were sort of looked a scan that the, the nothing could be more racist than that it seems to me but I also wonder if people have got uh, performance assessments on uh, physicians who, who, you know, come from this this system. Well, I would argue, Dr. Drew, that it's not racist. It's perfectly rational. If you're living in a world of widespread racial preferences, uh, it's rational to think that any given member of that preferred class has gotten along because of his race. And this is one of the hypocrisies on college campuses today where on the one hand, colleges tell us that if you get rid of racial preferences, we're not going to be able to enroll any black students. In other words, all of our black students here are as a result of racial preferences. And then if anybody says to a black student, well, maybe you're here because of racial preferences, there's a massive, uh, you know, oh, I'm so unsafe psychological meltdown and students accuse that person of being a racist, even though that is precisely the the conditions under which we are told is the only way to have a racially diverse class. So it is perfectly rational in a system of ubiquitous preferences to think. And, you know, it's the same for females. I know without without any doubt that I've been put onto panels or chosen for various programs because the institution needs a female. I find that insulting. I don't believe that being female is an accomplishment. I don't believe being black is an accomplishment. I don't believe being gay is an accomplishment. It should be an irrelevancy. Uh, but the it's what we see where we've been able to measure the effect of racial preferences most acutely is in law firms 
and legal practice where it's a very quantitative process and uh, corporate law firms admit black law school graduates into their associate class at rates that far exceed their actual qualifications. And you can talk to attorneys and they'll say the students, they have real challenges with their writing skills. They end up not getting the plum assignments because at some point the profit motive takes over and they don't end up making partner at the same rate. And of course that is attributed to racism yet again, and pressure is on uh, to put black associates into partner levels regardless of their actual uh, judicial or legal competence. I'm extremely worried, Dr. Drew, about the bench, the federal bench. Uh, Biden has made a point of using race and sex as the predominant criteria for elevating judges to the bench. He actually said that he was not gonna submit his judicial nominees to the American Bar Association for preclearance because the ABA, according to Biden's administration, wasn't sufficiently appreciative of diversity, which is a complete <laughs> insane fabrication. The ABA is obsessed with diversity. What Biden was basically telling us was that he was gonna be nominating to the federal bench people who were so incompetent that they would not even get past the ABA. And that matters. I do know of one, one study that was described to me by a Harvard professor done by a Harvard health economist that did try to, to come out with a way of, of a random controlled experiment to see the effect of racial preferences in medical uh, uh, settings. And he looked at people that were driving on, on the highway that had a heart attack. And he tried to correlate them, the outcomes for that heart attack based on the hospitals that they would have been brought to and their chances of being served by a racial preference beneficiary. What I was told is the results were so toxic that he buried the study. Uh, he was terrified that his career would be at risk if he went forward with it. Um, so it, it just stands to reason, unless we're so nihilistic that we do, that we believe that there's no such thing as actual merit. There's no such thing as a greater and a lesser, um, mastery. Well, that's what, that's what I'm beginning from your argument. I'm beginning to think that we've really lost faith in the notion of merit, right? That, I mean, there are certainly people that argue that, uh, even logic itself, objectivity itself, is an old white man's uh, prerogative and, and instrument that it should be completely ignored because it is, uh, you know, came out of the Enlightenment, which was, or any of these notions that came out of the brains of old white men uh, should be uh, completely marginalized. Well, the reason they're making, the only reason they're making that argument is because standards of achievement of rationality when applied in a neutral colorblind fashion have a disparate impact on blacks, not because they're inherently irrational, but because at this point, uh, they do not embrace a culture of, of high academic achievement and striving like Asians. Everything in our world today, Drew, whenever you see a standard being torn down, especially in the criminal law, the explanation is this and this only. It's because of racial disparate impact. So the reason that we have prosecutors that are not prosecuting a whole range of offenses 
why we have police chiefs that are telling their police officers don't make car stops, don't make pedestrian stops, don't stop somebody for jumping a turnstile or, or engaged in shoplifting. It's all because if we were to enforce those laws, they would have a disparate impact on black criminals. Again, not because the law is racist, but because there is an astronomically higher rate of criminal offending in the black community. The solution is not to tear down standards to avoid disparate impact. The solution is to meet the standards on a colorblind basis. This is Watkins. Welcome with Bridget Pettisee. I love hearing people's stories of resilience and grit. This is why I created this podcast. We are very excited to welcome Jim Gaffigan, Yasmin Mohammed, Glenn Beck, Tim Dillon, Abigail Schreier, Jeff Garland, Ayan Hirsi-Ali, Sam Harris, Heather Hying, Jonah Goldberg, Ben Shapiro, Glenn Greenwald, Sarah Shahi, Colin Quinn. If there's a culture of victimhood, then let's tell stories of grit and survival. Subscribe and listen now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. How do you help African-Americans then get up to that task? Well, uh, we've been trying to help for the last 60 years with trillions of dollars of redistribution in welfare payments and education in Title I sending vast amounts of per capita funding to inner city schools. We can continue making those efforts, but at this point, I would say the most important thing that needs to happen has to come from within the community itself, which is to reject 100% the oppositional culture that says that academic effort is acting white. Parents need to be involved in their students' education, in their children's education. The black truancy rate uh, one study in California is four times higher than whites. I can guarantee you it's many more times higher than Asians. Uh, Self-reported amount of time doing homework uh, is three times higher for Asians than for black students. My guess is, again, that is a vast underestimate because it's based on students self-reporting their time uh, on homework. The few inner city teachers who left the profession and then have spoken honestly about what those classrooms are like, describe an absolute hellish situation of students not paying attention, wearing headphones, singing in class, walking around class, being disruptive, uh, you know, not taking their textbooks home to study. And of course, if the, if the teacher tries to discipline insubordination, uh, this started in the Obama administration, if not earlier, uh, the school will be accused of racially discriminating against black students because it is not allowed to say that, well, just maybe black students are more insubordinate in class. And the reality I've been to uh, inner city schools in New York City, I can tell you those are not environments that are conducive to learning because of the behavior of the students that goes unchallenged by teachers who are terrified to discipline students lest they be called racist. Back to the potential benefits of, uh, of a of affirmative action type style of, of uh, education. Would it not be the case that creating more products of much higher education and professional training and to have those African-Americans advocate back to the community to, to advocate on behalf of what it takes 
to get from from uh, point A to point B. Isn't, isn't that a potential net benefit here? Well, the big fallacy, Dr. Grew, Drew, in the result of the uh, decision by the Supreme Court, SFA, SFFA versus Harvard, that in theory says you can't use race in the college admissions, although that it's created a huge loophole that I think will just dismantle the entire force of the opinion. Um, but the fallacy is that without racial preferences, there'll simply be no blacks going to college. That's just not true. The same number of blacks will go to college as before. They'll just go to different colleges. They'll go to colleges on the same condition as their non-preferred peers, which is going to colleges for which they are academically qualified. Right now, black students and to a lesser extent, Hispanics are the only students who go under this burden of being catapulted into academic environments for which they're not qualified. As a result, they switch out of STEM majors at much higher rates because they're put into schools where their STEM fellow students have much higher math SAT scores. They would have done perfectly well in a STEM major in a less selective school. Uh, so it's not as if the only way that Blacks could go to college is through racial preferences. Preferences put them up at a disadvantage. It's not an advantage. I wouldn't, again, I ask you, would you want to go to MIT if you had 600s or 650s on your math SATs when everybody else around you had 800s? Maybe you believe it doesn't matter. I would not because well, I, know, I know that I would really, really struggle. Yeah, I, I I actually do have a kind of a strong opinion about that because of personal experience. So I went to Amherst College, and I would say that my ability to perform academically was not up to the standards of the college. But when I got there, the level of competition had me get my shit together very, very quickly. And uh, really, I, I, I began and continued to and even excelled at at a level of performance that I didn't even know I was capable of. And so I'm a, I'm a big fan of competition amongst the students raising the performance of, of kids that, you know, but I, but, you know, I had good grades and good scores and things like that. I just, I just was lazy really when you get right down to it. Uh, and if my, if my, my intellectual horsepower was significantly well, even a notch below what it turned out to be, it would have been horrific. <laughs> it would have been terrible, actually. But there is sort of a zone there that I happen to fall into personally, where if you get someone in a competitive environment, they perform. Uh, so I'd love to see more data on that or how to select those kinds of students or something, just because uh, that would be the best of all possible worlds. That may not be a lot of kids, but that would be the best possible outcome of of policies like this, wouldn't it? Well, we've got the data on law schools. Every every law school in the country has massive racial preferences. So all black law students have been catapulted into a law school that they're not competitively qualified for. And as a result, after the first year of law school, which is the most objectively measured academic performance because these students all take uh, exams that are graded by anonymously, uh, Nobody knows who they are, and they all take the same exams. They all take the same courses. Uh, over 50% of Black law students end up in the bottom 10th of their class, and two-thirds of all Black law students at the end of the first year end up in the bottom quarter of their class. That is huge. That is not something that 
erases racial stereotypes, it confirms it. And that never, that disparity never ever goes away. Black students fail the bar exam at much, much higher rates than white students. So they, they never, they, there's the number of black students who never pass the exam after multiple efforts is much, much higher, six times higher than white students who never pass. Do, do they get do they get input from these kids? Do they give them a chance to report how they feel about all this? Are there anecdotal or even collected stories so so we can hear from the kids that are dealing with this? I, I'm just thinking about my own experience again. I'm just remembering when I first got to that college, I immediately announced that I can't keep up with this. I'm not up for this. And and indeed my brain, you know, the the adult, the the young adult male brain does need a little maturation before he can really uh, perform academically. And when I came back around like a year, year and a half later and recommitted myself to my scientific training, I performed at a completely different level. Uh, so, you know, there, there are, you know, experiences that people have in these environments that can be run the gamut from uh, crushing to inspirational. Do they, is anybody collecting these stories? Well, there's two issues, Drew. You know, there may be uh, a handful of, of preference beneficiaries who respond just as you did and up their game. Is it worth it for those few to have the vast majority that are absolutely felled by academic mismatch that end up sw switching out of, you know, it, there was an interesting study done at Duke University. A larger percentage of black male freshmen intended to major in STEM than white male freshmen entering Duke. That's good. We should applaud, you know, these yes. blacks, they want to they want to graduate in a STEM major. By the senior year, there's very few black male STEM majors left standing. It's all Asian and whites because they've been put into schools that they're not competent. If they went instead to North Carolina State University, they could probably graduate with a STEM. But here's here's the other thing I would say, Drew. It's a different, it was a different time and you were a different race. At Amherst, if you were struggling, nobody was there to tell you that the reason you were struggling was white supremacy. That the reason you were struggling was that you were in a college environment that didn't value you for your race. Today, when a black preference beneficiary gets to college and he ends up not doing as well, or he finds himself, you know, insecure because he's not keeping up there's a vast diversity bureaucracy that will run up to him and say you're absolutely right you are oppressed you you do not have professors who understand the way to to teach a diverse group of students we haven't yet changed all standards on your behalf and so the message being sent will not was not well you've just got to study harder it's that we have to change our standards to meet your level of preparation, not you change your effort to meet our level of standards. Yeah, that that is actually kind of sad because it it they would miss that uh, ability to really soar. Um, it, it I you know I I am aware that that was a different time. I, I've often said I said this to my own kids like look we were it was clear to me that school at that time was going for monastery meets prison. <laughs> was the vibe monastery meets prison 
And if you couldn't keep up with it, you were just dumb or you just didn't work hard enough. So just get it together. I, I have to say that sounds like my idea of academic heaven. I, I, you know, I think that school is for school, period. It's for cramming as much knowledge into the empty noggins of students as four years can possibly achieve. It is not for personal well, expression. And, uh, and let me and let me tell you that in addition to getting a lot of information in, they also took the position that I don't. They would professors would say this to me. They I don't want to know what you know. Yes. I assume you know everything that is here. I want to know what you don't know. Oh, that's I great. Continue to press until I find out where that is. And so as there was a lot of, I, I remember later when I was doing much much better. There was a lot of well. Here's what the here's what the Nobel laureate in biochemistry was thinking about this year. You work on it, struggle oh. with, it. see where you go. <laughs> it's like okay. It's like now, even now, I'm like oh, shut up when I think about it. Like I can't even. It's a traumatizing. But uh, so great. That is so great. You know, now of course it's self esteem and they make student feel unsafe. And so you know, the it's it's absolutely true. It is a consumer culture. Colleges don't want to alienate students and tell them that, you know what, you're a bunch of ignoramuses, shut up and, and study and read Milton. And, and they told us just, you know, just, ugh, you know, just, just get it, get it together, kid. Um, but uh, what did I wrote myself a note here? Now I can't read, but you said there was a loophole in the decision. What, what, Oh, I know what I did before we do that. I want to say it was social. That's the word I wrote down because when my kids were applying to college, literally the college uh, sort of uh, advisor said, you know, some of you are going to want a social experience. And I thought, why, first of all, you've been in a college, you've been in a high academic high school. Why did we do that? If you're going to go to college and just for, for fun, for party and why I don't want to pay for college. That is just a social experience. That is bizarre to me. That's one of the, one of the sort of uh, priorities that uh, somebody could go for in finding a college. I understand you want to have a place where you're going to be happy and be maybe socially, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, at your ease, but that's not why you go to college, but I don't know. We've lost that a little bit. Well, I think you and I drew our, our kindred spirits, but I think we're also rare uh, because I, I completely agree. I do not understand the whole college drinking scene, to be perfectly honest. And I hope I don't alienate some of your listeners by being honest about this, but I, I don't understand. Listen, I, I, listen I, I know it's it happens and I know it's there, but I've always said, what is with the college administrators that they are endorsing as normative pathological behavior is what they've always done. Well, they're just going to do it. You know, it's like, no, this is not good. Binge alcohol is not good. You've every adverse outcome you can measure in an adolescent or young adult, you always find alcohol, whether it's an STD, a fight, an accident, unwanted pregnancy, uh, unwanted sexual contact, whatever it is, you find alcohol. And that should be dealt with accordingly. I mean, I know they're going to drink, but don't endorse it as some sort of some sort of rite of passage. It's just anyway, I, college well, administrators are a whole other mystery to me. I think it's a bunch of people that got into those positions uh, and were in college themselves when you know we didn't trust authority and anyone in authority was a bad person. And when they were put in a position of authority, they won't. They're afraid to be the, the authority. They don't know what to do. Yeah. Well, they want their their bureaucratic imperium to just expand and expand and that means that students can't be per, can't be exercised personal responsibility you know they have to be dependent on adults mm. and uh and and there's a codependent relationship between these self-engrossed students and the and the bureaucrats that cater to them the whole student services bureaucracy of which the diversity bureaucracy is a part 
is what drives up the tuition to these obscene levels. And then we have Biden wanting to bail everybody out. Nobody holds the colleges responsible. How about you lower your tuition? You know, how about you restrain your bureaucratic costs? No, that's treated as some kind of naturally occurring phenomenon. It's just an incredible scam that they get away with. Yes. But again, I would just, I'm, I'm just going to confess here. I am not, was not a party girl in college. I think college is the most precious opportunity to learn the greatness of the past. The, the, British philosopher Michael Oakeshott said that school is a place where an inheritance gets transmitted from one generation to the next. It is on the shoulders of others, all, all knowledge. It really is on the, uh, the shoulders of those that came before. And and professors should be saying each year, you know, come to my class, you will experience beauty, you will experience sublimity, you will experience works that probably... Once you get out of here, you're never going to have the opportunity to experience again. Seize this moment because you've never got it before. You'll never get it again. And they, and they don't say that. Globally, humans are facing massive problems that are widely ignored by governments and the media. Like personal space invaders. I had it with these couples that sit on the same side of the booth. Yak mouths. Stupid stick figure bumper stickers. Almond milk. You cannot milk an almond. Hi, I'm Jennifer. And I'm Angie. We call her Pumps, and we're the hosts of I've Had It. Pumps, tell the listener where they can find us. Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nailed it. See you next Tuesday. I would just say when you talk about social, um, to get back to the preference issue, admitting students that are not competitively qualified does not help social environments. You know, we keep asking, why are the black kids sitting at the same table? Well, you know, and I had that in college in the 70s uh, because they feel like they need emotional support because they don't feel at place academically. And so it does not, and, and then you have colleges that set up uh, black and you know freshman orientation, black graduation, black dorms. It gets it's been segregated since the '90s. People forget that, but it's certainly not improved. Uh, and and so, admitting people with different standards of admission doesn't help racial progress in this country. It retards it. What were the loopholes in the uh, recent Supreme Court decision you were referring to? The Chief Justice Roberts, who wrote the majority opinion, purported to say, as a general matter, you can't use race, you can't take race into account in admitting students. But he said, but of course, if a student mentions on his application essay the way that race made a big difference in his life, then, of course, you can take that into account. Well, he's basically just confirming the existing practice, which is something called holistic admissions, which is a fiction that, that campuses have already been using to say, oh, no, no, we don't have hard and fast quotas. We, we evaluate everybody on an individual basis and race is just the teensiest little tipping point of otherwise equally qualified applicants. None of that is true. Race is zero sum. You admit a, a set of students on the basis of racial preferences you're excluding a fixed number, an equal number of more qualified white and Asian students. Once you admit race into the picture, it is not just a little bitsy tipping point. It becomes the be all and end all. And But holistic admissions purports to say, 
oh, well, we're looking at the whole student, the whole student experience. So we already have a massive college admissions consulting industry that is telling students, you got to play up your victimhood. You know, all these, all these kids that come from married two parent normal homes that have not experienced massive dislocation or or handicap nothing to be ashamed of we should celebrate the any remaining homes that can give students and children a relatively normal bourgeois upbringing but they're tearing their hair out to say how can i be a victim or how can i you know beef up my stupid extracurricular activities so that I look like a social justice warrior. Well, the, these consultants are already telling minority students, you got to play up your race, uh, you know, say how you've overcome the systemic inequality of America. That's going to continue after SFFA v. Harvard, the recent decision purporting to end racial preferences, and it will only get worse. And it's going to be very hard to smoke the schools out and the, the Justice Roberts did not provide any benchmarks for future litigation of how we're going to say, well, actually, you're still utilizing racial preferences, which they all still will. You'd mentioned uh, the criminal legal system a few minutes, quite a few minutes ago, and I wanted to swing back around to that as well. And, you know, I, I see we, you know, no one can not see what's happening in our cities and and, you know, the fact that um, things that uh, some really serious things are maybe not being prosecuted in the same way. I'm, I'm certainly delighted to see drug crimes being less represented in our prisons. I think that's a significant positive. And I do think that black America was disproportionately affected by those things. But what, what do you make of what's happening now as it pertains to the criminal justice system and, and people who, who have been advocating for this, what do they say about the current circumstance? Do they just say that's how it's going to be? Or do they say these are growing pains and it's going to equilibrate? I mean, what's their sort of defense of some of the things that are having such a significantly negative impact on our cities? Well, I'm afraid I can't answer your question without first addressing uh, the premise that you set up, because it leads to the question, which is that you think that Blacks were, in fact, uh, the victim of mass incarceration, disproportionately affected, and an improper. I said on drug and drug offenses. Drug enforcement by drug enforcement, and the big exhibit A in that is always the crack cocaine penalties. Left out of that narrative that said, "Oh, crack cocaine is is penalized for traffickers higher rate than powder cocaine," is the fact that it was the Congressional Black Caucus that demanded a crackdown on crack dealing. It was Charlie Rangel of Harlem, uh, Major Owens of Brooklyn, who said this is the worst affliction that has affected the black community since slavery. Uh, we've got to lock these people away. Uh, they 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 asked for higher penalties. And that that meme about the higher crack penalties being racist ignores the fact that the mandated federal minimums for meth trafficking which is overwhelmingly white, not black, was actually absolutely identical to the minimum penalties for crack trafficking. So if you were trafficking five grams of, of meth or crack, you got identical sentences. Uh, the, the 
drug enforcement has always been driven initially primarily by the black community. Uh, Michael Fortner has written about this, James Foreman at the Yale Law School, whether in the 50s or in the 80s with crack. So, uh, and it is also not the case that drug imprisonment accounts for the real racial disparities in the prison population. The prison population is about one third black nationally and our national black population is about 13% black. So yes, there are real racial disparities there. Drug enforcement has almost nothing to do with that. Uh, drug possession has nothing to do with that. Drug trafficking is about 12% of all convictions that get you to prison. Uh, they are overwhelmingly, after many, many efforts you know, of, of keeping people out of prison, the real reason that people are in prison, including Blacks, is violent crime and property crime. So what's going on today and what, how do people explain this? Uh, I don't think they've been forced to. I think our progressive prosecutors are just determined to state that any racial disparities in the criminal justice system are by definition the result of racism. And I'm, I can't explain it. I cannot explain it. They don't give a damn about black lives. After the George Floyd race riots, the police backed off as they did after the Michael Brown shooting in Ferguson, Missouri. And what we got in 2020 was the largest single increase in homicide in this nation's history, 29%. That is a, a statistical shift that is stunning in any field. If you get a one year shift of 29% of anything, whether it's disease or height or weight, something very serious is going on. And the majority of additional victims in that homicide increase were black. Thousands more blacks were killed than had been killed pre-George Floyd. Uh, black children, dozens of black children, toddlers, one-year-olds were gunned down in these barbaric drive-by shootings in their houses, in their backyards, in their front porches, in their bedrooms, in their parents' cars, at barbecues, at public parks. Gunned down, not by whites, not by the police, but by other blacks. And we never say their names. We have to say the names of the basic, let's be honest here, the criminal thugs, George Floyd and Michael Brown. We'd never say the names of the black kids that are gunned down in drive-by shootings. Why? Because they're not shot by the police or by other whites because they're killed by other blacks. Do you have other concerns about what the preoccupation with equity is doing besides sacrificing excellence? Well, it's teaching young people to hate the greatest works of Western civilization. It's this, this disparate impact, lack of racial proportionality, obsession is hitting in the culture as well, uh, in things that I believe are, for me, the most important things in my life, whether it's classical music or the great tradition of, of art, Western art, all of these amazing accomplishments, these these extraordinary millennia-long conversations among artistic geniuses that are expressing the deepest yearnings and eros and wit and, and sorrow and pathos of the human soul. Children are now being told to hate these works because they came out of a of an continent that was demographically white. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, or European art is going to be white. That's what the continent's demographics were for 
for thousands of years. Nobody says that about Chinese classical opera, that we should hate it because it's all Chinese, because that's what China was. We don't say we should hate African tribal art or African tribal drumming because the participants are all black, because Af Sub-Saharan Africa is black. Only the West is committing suicide on the phony idea that to be white is to be the world's oppressor. I saw some analysis by a historian, and I'm forgetting what the term was he used, you may know it, which was essentially that a highly successful culture always learns to hate itself. Uh, they, they has a, has a name, uh, but it's, it's sort of inevitable outcome of the historical sweep and has to be kind of fought against and for, I, I, it may take me too long to look it up. Uh, hmm. but it, it is interesting. Uh, yeah, there's a question here. Why does the Western world hate itself? That it seems to be something that does happen in a repetitive way through history. And uh, we need to kind of take a good look at it because it, it somehow it is is a feature that that creeps in. It, the The equity thing bothers me because uh, you know it's being applied in medicine all over the place, and it's just you cannot make an eighty five year old woman into a seventeen year old male. They just are not. And and by the way, a seventeen year old Native American male versus a an Asian 85 year old woman, these are have complete, I mean, it's just, there's no equity is, is, a, is anathema. You can't even, can't even, you can't even talk about it rationally. And yet that uh, yardstick appears to be entering into the game. So it's very concerning for me on the biological side of things. Stream the biggest blockbusters this summer with popcorn summer movies on Pluto TV. Experience nonstop action with the first four Mission Impossible movies and Top Gun. Laugh out loud to comedies like Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, and The Backup Plan. With thousands of free movies, Pluto TV has something for everyone. Available on live TV and on demand. Download Pluto TV on all your favorite devices and start streaming now. As you, as you look forward, what what are the things that sort of worry you? Are you writing another book now? Are you are you preoccupied with other things? Or are you just still focused on uh, merit merit and race? Well, first of all, if you can find out that historian, I'd be very interested in hearing what he has to say, because I've been operating on the assumption that this self hatred and self suicide is pretty unique uh, of a culture turning on itself. The only comparable thing I can think of is the Chinese Cultural Revolution, mm. uh, but that was the mob turning against the elites. The, the weird thing about the post-George Floyd world is that you have the elites turning against everybody else and declaring their inheritance racist and shameful and something that, that should be taken down and replaced by... Uh, whatever the, the mob wants to put up there, which it never does. It merely tears things down. Right. I don't think the French Revolution was not based on hatred of French culture. The French Revolution kept intact reverence for, for Voltaire and Diderot uh, and, and Rousseau. 
uh, and and the playwrights Corneille and Racine, it, it said we don't want the absolute right of kings any longer, and we don't want the arist aristocracy any longer, but it did not say that French culture per se is, is wrong. And I'm not even sure that would be true of Russian culture as well. I don't I don't think that the Russian Revolution necessarily turned on Tolstoy and Turgenev and Pushkin and Tchaikovsky. So well, I, you know, the French Revolution, the revolutionaries did go in and destroy everything historical and old. A lot of stuff was lost because it all represented the excesses of the aristocracy, right? They that's absolutely true. They well, it was it was heavily targeted at churches. I I don't know. I I just would be very confident that the French curriculum remained dedicated to the classics afterwards. Yes, there, there's no doubt about that. I, I was just I just spoke to a French journalist who said that that really didn't break down until 1968, right? When there was the student uprisings, and yes, right. and that they was it was uh, quite quite uh, uh, not right or left, but conservative education and very very intense. Absolutely. Uh, and that's when they started breaking down their their standards. And now, you know, my, my friends that are French always tell me that the way people distinguish themselves now is not by what job they have or how much money they earn, but what they what they have in their head, what they what their intellectual uh, prowess is. That's how people get status now in France, which is kind of interesting. That's the remnant of all that. You would think that they would want to restore that educational system if that's really what they valued, but they're still not able to quite do that. So it's it is interesting. I, I'm going to have to find this thing. I, I'm I'm sorry. I, I'm just quickly, you know. Oh, here it's called oik oikophobia. Uh huh. Is that what it is? Oikophobia. It is. Uh -huh. Let me see if that's it. It looks familiar. Uh, explains the phenomenon, arguing that reveal a civilization that stopped believing in itself, then hates itself, and that is therefore unwilling to defend the values of freedom and democracy, etc. Uh, I think this this sounds familiar to me. I'm going to look up that yeah, one. I think you're on to it. I think that's it. Yeah, oikophobia, and that it is something that comes around periodically. Um, so we're we're in it. That doesn't mean you can't fight against it. I, I've also become very preoccupied with the behavior of mobs because I, I, you know, in my lifetime that was not something I had contemplated. Nor was tribalism. But both things are <laughs> front and center right now. Uh, you know, our, our mob behavior, our hysteria, our, our you know, scapegoating and, you know, mob action and social media is just at, a, at an extraordinary clip. Well, and I've I, experienced it on college campuses, and it's really something to stare down the mob, the student mob. I mean, they're just in a state of narcissistic self-pity frenzy, and it's it's really stunning. Well, it's funny you say narcissism. I, I wrote a book on narcissism, and in there I wanted to put a chapter in uh, collective scapegoating because I felt that that was going to be the next – because we've had a narcissistic turn. And I just wanted to look at other periods of history that had these the, uh, high, high level of childhood traumas and high levels of narcissism. The only thing I could come up with was pre-revolutionary France. And so I predicted that there would be guillotines. I didn't know, I didn't know about cancellation and social media. This was like 20 years ago. And uh, the editor wouldn't let me put it in because it was too speculative, too sounded too far fetched. But whenever there is extreme, a lot of when there's a lot of unregulated aggression and narcissism, people will either start tearing themselves apart, each other apart, or they will collectivize into a mob and scapegoat others. And uh, that's where we are right now. And we need to fight, fight, fight against that stuff. So, well, um, Heather, I, I don't think I heard you tell me what 
what is preoc what's worrying you going forward is there is there a new book uh, in your mind is there something that you're please i just finished this one okay uh, well i feel uh, you're the kind of person who goes from one to the next i i thought yeah, sure. I'm writing all the time. I, I just I've made my first foray into trans ideology recently for City Journal that that people it's been getting a lot of attention. So maybe your listeners want to look that article up. But um, no, I, I think that we're not out. of. I mean, it's it's way too soon to turn my attention to other things because I'm I'm getting sent on a daily basis. Uh, people, you know, oncologists that are sending me the latest missive from the federal government about how they can't select cancer researchers for their lab based on the cancer researchers qualifications that what really matters is diversity and they won't get a federal grant unless they have a happy diverse lab uh and and medical education you know spending more and more time in teaching students about about racism and how we can't even talk about being obese any longer because that's racist so you know if it turns out that higher black mortality is related to behavior not to systemic racism. Well, we're never going to solve it then because you can't talk about the behavioral choices that people make because that's racist. So, well, and, and that's the part that bothers me is is helping humans thrive. And, and I and I when we can't do that in a meaningful way, I, I'm very disturbed by that. Right. It feels like a lot of the well, and the proof is in the pudding. A lot of the you know attempts to help people thrive through um, doing what people think is good has clearly not done that much good. And uh, that's what bothers me. I, I'd rather, I want everybody to thrive. And how how we get there should be the subject of strictly objective study like anything else. And then uh, apply uh, apply the, uh, the, the treatments accordingly. I mean, that's just what we should be doing. But uh, it's sad to make me think, uh, to think that we can't do that because uh, really, really it's because politicians stay in office by saying things that, uh, you know, are popular. It's when you get right down to it. That's it's people seeking power, which right now seems like a that's the pandemic right now that we have to pay attention to. The people doing and saying things just to retain power. It's just awful, awful, it seems to me. Well, I say we have a pandemic of cowardice as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have doctors now that are not willing to defend the integrity of their profession. And you have leading scientific journals like the Scientific American or JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association, Lancet, uh, all saying that there's certain topics that are off limits. Again, I mean, of all the insane things to say to people that you cannot talk about the relationship between obesity and COVID mortality or obesity and yeah. diabetes or obesity yeah. and heart disease because that would be racist because blacks have higher rates of obesity. I mean, that's insane, but they will not, the Scientific American get a whole special issue in 2020 about racism in science. And one of the examples was talking about obesity. Uh, so science is being compromised now. There are certain topics that are completely off limits. Uh, that includes heritability, uh, and and we're and and certainly the trans phenomenon is just unbelievable. Where you have the American Pediatric Association denying biology and engaging in behavior that should be per se bar for disqualification of of mutilating healthy children uh, because they we're all going to cater to to a, a confusion that a child may have prompted by by uh by teachers and and we actually believe that there is something 
it is possible to change your sex when sex is written into every of your trillion cells. It's, it's, it's amazing. So the great accomplishment of Western civilization, which is the scientific method, the careful testing of hypotheses and randomized controlled experiments, that's all being thrown out the window. Unfortunately, we will have to leave it here uh, when, let me get, it's. I'm assuming we can get it everywhere where they sell books, uh, Amazon and whatnot. Do go out and read the book. It is When Race Trumps Merit, How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellent. Heather, is there a website you like to refer people to? Well, I have a Twitter account that um, I actually don't run, but it serves simply as a way to that all my appearances and writings are posted, which we will post your podcast, Dr. Drew, when it comes out. Uh, so that's probably the easiest way to keep up with what I'm writing. So, And I don't even know what the handle is. It's some crazy Twitter handle like HMD Dad or something. But just if you Google Heather McDonald and Twitter, you'll get my my uh, account. Okay, fair enough. Heather McDonald, thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Drew. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. 